Welcome to America's First Warriors, stories of today's airmen and guardians. In celebration of Native American Heritage Month, this five-episode series explores the stories of members of the Air and Space Force through candid conversations centering around their individual backgrounds and culture. By gaining a better understanding of the members of our total force, we become a more rich and ready team. I'm your host, Chief Master Sergeant Mark Legvold, Command Chief of the 133rd Airlift Wing, Minnesota Air National Guard. Thanks for joining me on the second episode of America's First Warriors, stories of today's airmen and guardians. And today I am pleased to be joined by Senior Airman Carly Law. Carly is a personnelist who works at Buckley Space Force Base, um, and she's originally from the state of Oregon. Thanks for joining me, Carly. Hi, luckily to see you. Thank you for having me. It's a it's an honor and a privilege to have this opportunity to speak with you and kind of give my my experiences. Well, we're all excited to hear your story. So let's just start off right there. You grew up in a place called, and if I mispronounce it, you're going to help me, Klamath Falls, Oregon. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep. Uh, good old what, Klamath Falls, Oregon. <laughs> what was your experience like growing up there? Um, so it's a pretty rural area. There's a lot of farming and ranching. So when people think of Oregon, they think, oh, Portland, it's weird there. And it's rainy and dreary. It, it's actually the opposite. So where, where I'm from, there's the Klamath Lake and the Klamath River, which are very important to, to the tribes there. And surrounded by mountains, it's, it's really similar to where I'm at now in Aurora, Colorado, but more of a, a basin. And uh, it's just so wonderful and beautiful and full of like of life. You shared a story with me earlier about a time when you were growing up and you found some uh, historical artifacts uh, there where you where you were living. And you learned an important lesson from your dad at that time. And that kind of inspired you for the rest of your life. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, um, so like I said, I grew up in Klamath Falls, Oregon, but just north of Klamath is Chilliquin, which is or was the, the reservation of the Klamath Modoc and Yahuskin tribe. So the, the people that, that I'm related to, that I'm a part of. And we have, uh, there's a family ranch there just north of Chilliquin, kind of deep in the woods and the river runs through it. That's beautiful. It's very quiet and peaceful. But just outside of um, my my family's house, there, there's these what we call pit houses, or which are I mean, at the back then you could see like there was a dome over these kind of dugout areas in the earth. So what's left today is these deep indentations in the ground, and all around it you can see what what are called lithics which is um, basically, you know how like a lot of artifacts from, from Native Americans are like made out of, out of obsidian, which like arrowheads, the most common thing. So lithics are what is left when you, when you make a, an arrowhead, they flake off. So those are lithics. So we, I'd find them walking around and I'd want to like take them with me. And my dad would always tell me like, no, you can't, you can't take that. That's, that's part of history. You got to, you have to leave it. If you take it, you disturb it, you disturb everything around it. We leave it so we can remember what was there. We could appreciate our history and, and help protect it for the future. So the next 
seven generations can appreciate it as well. That stuck with you and it was very poignant and it kind of inspired you to not just leave what you saw where your ancestors lived, but also to work to um, identify and preserve and archive other cultures. Uh, so you finished high school there and uh, went on and here you are as a senior airman working on a Space Force base, but uh, maybe folks don't know this about you. You are a very well-educated um, person. You went, uh, got your bachelor's in anthropology and archaeology, is that right? Yes, that, that is correct. I went to Oregon State um, from 2010 to 2013, obtained my Bachelor of Arts in Anthropology with a focus in archaeology. Uh, took a year off and worked, and what a lot of people don't know is I, I actually worked for the Bureau of Land Management as, at first, a, like an archaeological aide, so I was the assistant to the lead archaeologist there. And then as the years went by, I went to to my undergrad and they actually gave me a, a higher position. I was an archaeological technician then. So that would, they would send me out to do surveys in these areas wherever there was like a big project. And then I could record any historical sites and help preserve those sites or make sure that there was no adverse effect to any ongoing projects like a, a timber harvest or uh, a slash burn. And then um, in 2014, I went to University of Montana and obtained my uh, Master in Arts with a focus in cultural heritage, which is basically archaeological law. A fascinating field to get into. <laughs> and it, you've had so many really fantastic experiences, both in Oregon and in Montana working. Um, so you described some of that work. What were some of the finds that you uh, came upon and how did you have to work if you were working with uh, forestry, uh, I assume there was kind of this pull and push between um, what you wanted to protect and preserve and what they wanted to uh, come and clear, harvest, or uh, maintain. How did you work that balance? Uh, it's definitely difficult because you have all these different forces kind of pulling at you, trying to get you to help them achieve their their goals and their 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 efforts so when when a project is ongoing you have to write up a report that records your findings and then you give a, a statement on what you think the project is going to do is it going to have adverse effect if yes what are what are your suggestions on what can happen it, it's really similar to how the air force works like if you come across an issue um instead of just like saying hey i have this issue it's it's really pushed for someone to like, okay, you have this issue. What are your options? What, what can you do to solve this issue? Is it just going to have this adverse effect or are there ways you can mitigate it and you can make it not as, as bad. You can actually, it makes you think more, I guess, outside the box, consider all your options. I'm sure. And a constant challenge. And you brought up how this kind of equated to your, your service in the air force now, coming as a very well-established, well-educated, um, more seasoned individual, you decided to join the Air Force in 2019 and go through basic training. And I'm not going to ask you to share your age, but let's just say you were probably older than the 18 or 19-year-old airman going through. You are um, 
uniquely qualified to go through and provide a little bit of on the ground uh, leadership going through the basic training and your initial technical skills. But that also comes with some challenges. Uh, can you describe what it was like going through basic training as a little bit older, more experienced airman? It was definitely difficult, not physically. The physical aspect was fairly, fairly easy for me. I mean, I would survey, like I would walk 15 miles a day on average surveying through these rough terrain. So then going to basic and marching everywhere and everyone's sad about having to wake up at, as the sun comes up at, at dawn or, or a little later, it was, it was easy for me. It was, it was my second nature. But having to deal with the, the age difference, I mean, I grew up in a, in a different time. I, I remember 9-11 um, throughout elementary school, and I remember the effects of it. I remember Y2K, <laughs> mm-hmm. and all these, these other individuals don't. It's, it's, it's part of their history books. So it's, it was definitely difficult in navigating that social difference but after a little while you're able to like communicate with them and imbue some of your knowledge and your your abilities to these these younger individuals who are joining i'm sure eventually i was i was going to ask were they receptive to it it sounds sounds like your your style with people uh probably allowed you to to be a good on the ground leader and they eventually responded to that pretty well um you mentioned that you know some of the things you're very passionate about is just getting outdoors and and that that allows you to connect with the connect with the nature connect with your beliefs and i i still remember those very bright early mornings at lackland air force base where there is a sense of constant busy and push and pull but it's also extraordinarily peaceful if you just take a moment is that how you connected while you were going through that time in your life? Uh, at, at Lackland? Yes. Um, in a sense, uh, I mean, my favorite part of going through basic was Beast Week. We were, quote unquote, in these tents <laughs> that were pretty, pretty lavish in my, in my opinion, pretty nice. And just going through these physical drills. That's, that's how I found my, my connection. We were in a, a nature area with all these other individuals and going through these obstacle courses. And for, for me personally, I enjoy physical exertion. I enjoy trying to navigate something difficult and strenuous, which is why I love hiking so much. <laughs> Throw on a 45 pound pack and I'll be out in the woods for a couple of days and I'll be fine. <laughs> What a great place that you're stationed at now at, at Buckley. I'm sure it's a beautiful place to be. Um, I want to explore just a little bit your your cultural heritage. Uh, you, you said that uh, you kind of ran through it very, very quickly, how you describe um, not only the, the community that you are a part of, but then the, uh, okay, I'm just asking you, can you, Tell us a little bit more about your cultural heritage and how you identify within that. Klamath is a, it is a place, but it is also a, a Native American community. But then there's also sort of a regional description of that. Can you give us a little bit of uh, insight into that 
a part of your heritage? Yeah. Um, so, so I, when I first spoke, I said, Waklisi, which is it's basically, hello, how are you? Um, in Klamath. Uh, so I identify as a, a Klamath woman first and foremost, but the, the Klamath tribes is composed of actually three separate entities. There's the Klamath, the Modoc, and the Ayahuscan. And then within each of those tribes, there's various bands within it that compose it. I'm also a part of the, the Confederated Tribes of Siletz Indians on the Oregon coast in Siletz, Oregon. And that is part of, or is composed of approximately 21 different bands. And then I'm a part of that tribe, uh, or I'm related to that tribe through the Rogue River Band, which is located south kind of in the, the Medford area. And then I'm also Northern Cheyenne. So due to a lot of federal policy and regulation, um, you can only be a part of one tribe. So I I identify as Klamath. I grew up in the area. All my family is located in that area. Um, We have a deep history there. And, um, but I'm I'm registered as a a Siletz tribal member due to, again, the various policies that can be very, it's very dark. Um, it's a very dark part of our, our history that is, that is regulated. Is that type of regulation a, a limit on uh, how people identify? What, what does that, you mentioned it's dark. Um, what, what, did, what are the limitations? Aside from the fact that it's just tough to describe um, culturally uh, how and who, how people are, who, how people grow up and how they identify What's, uh, what are the limiting factors in that policy? So it can, it can limit how, what you can access within the tribe. So the, each tribe um, is supposed to be similar to how our federal government is structured. Uh, it's, it's a requirement if you're going to be a federally recognized tribe. Um, so there's about 567 or 68 federally recognized tribes, I believe. And like, like I said, so the Klamath tribes is composed of three different bands. The Confederate tribes of Siletz, approximately 21 different bands. So that, that big number doesn't take into account those various bands within those recognized tribes. And you're related to them based on what is known as blood quantum. So they you literally have to prove what percentage native you are to that tribe. And it's, it's very dark. It's, we're the only minority group that has to prove we are who we say we are. That sounds like it is uh, extraordinarily difficult. And uh, I'm sure that is, that is a personal struggle that, uh, yeah, hopefully we can. Our policy will catch up to where we are today, and people can just identify. Um, like you said, you know, you grew up in a culture, and that is how that's how you were raised. That's how you identify. But also being able to um, being able to understand and link with uh, all the all the parts of a person's heritage without having to go through and it just seems so archaic. Uh, doing mm-hmm. a proving a bloodline. Yeah. And then like on occasion, someone will ask me like, Oh, like how much are you? And it's like, actually, I know they don't mean harm. 
So when I when I do come across that question within the military, I, I try and correct them like, hey, like, you know what, like, I know you don't mean to to be rude or insensitive, but that's actually a really rough question to be asked um, to to correct you. And for future references, like when you ask someone like their heritage, like ask them like, hey, what uh, how do you how do you identify? Like where what what tribal affiliate or uh, yeah, what, what tribe are you from or band or how, how do you introduce yourself? I so appreciate that because uh, I am, I'm asking you, uh, I'm asking you questions. I'm coming at, at you as a, uh, a Scandinavian American, uh, old, old white guy. And sometimes you know, with a, with a good heart and, and good nature, people like me ask questions of, of, uh, of people from different cultures and we don't get it right, mm-hmm. even though we're, we're trying. And being gently corrected and guided along the way is something that I have come to really appreciate as a, as a still growing individual. But Carly, can you give us some of those tips that say, hey, how can I be a little bit more sensitive? Um, not asking somebody, oh, how much are you? But uh, saying, what what culture are you from? What culture do you identify with? What are some other other ways that people like me can be a little bit more sensitive and and learn a little bit more? Uh, I think one of the first things to do would just to, to look at the history of the area and see what what tribes or what bands, what peoples were were there, and try to try to glean a little bit of information of, of their history. Go like go to the the museum uh, would be a good first step, or even go online. Um, there are so many different maps that are out there that the tribal peoples have created and put out there for for someone to 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 learn more. Um, even if you have the chance to go to the uh, Smithsonian, the Native American Smithsonian in DC. That is a, a great place to go as well because it it looks into identity and how Native Americans have been portrayed throughout history. I mean, like at one point, uh, actors were painted to look Native American, and for a long time, the stereotype was we all looked like we were from the Southwest. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I, I've got a second question, follow up question for you, for you on that one, but. Uh you talked about, you know, getting to know, learning a little bit more about people's cultural heritage and, and what makes them unique. Uh, one of the things that you have done um, throughout your life, I imagine, is you picked up beadwork. Now you've started to become a teacher of that. And you're also working on a, um, a cookbook. Explain a digit kitchen to me. Um, so I'm not working on a, on a cookbook. Uh, I'm, I'm not that patient. I wrote a thesis. <laughs> that was about as far as I could get. <laughs> but um, so I'm, I'm spearheading the events here at Buckley for Native American Heritage Month. And um, on the 9th, I believe I'm doing like a, a craft session. So I'm showing people how to, to bead some earrings out of seed beads. I've, I've taught myself. Well, actually, no, um, when I was in my undergrad, I was with the, uh, the longhouse there on, on campus with a bunch of other students and, and they taught me. So I'm hoping I can, I can pass on some of this knowledge and through that I can, I can talk a little bit about tribal histories in the area. Um, and then on 
November 15th, I'm actually doing like a, uh, a cooking demo, I guess. Um, so the first dish I'm going to be making is a Indian tacos, or some people like to say like a Navajo tacos, big conflict there. <laughs> also, it's mm-hmm. just a fun conflict between tribal peoples. Um, so it's just, it's fry bread. So think of like the carnival elephant ears and then just made like a taco. <laughs> but I'm going to go into like the history of how that became like a, a tribal food staple um, and why why it's actually not really a staple, only only recently so. And then I'm going to try and make a, uh, a dish if you want to venture away from a turkey. Uh, try try a duck, or which, which would be common in this area, or where I'm from, um, salmon. So I kind of want to broaden and kind of show people how I like to cook, um, my people like to cook, and also kind of give like a little bit of a history lesson. Um, I've also been in contact with the tribal liaison here on Buckley, and he gave me this awesome um, basically book on the ethnography of this area. So I'm hoping I can dive into that and kind of glean some information from that to share. How is the, so Buckley's in a a good spot there in Colorado, and there is a lot of uh, Native American cultural heritage there. Can you describe the the community support and the community outreach that uh, as an airman uh, on a Space Force base, which I'm still learning how to understand that dynamic, but uh, what's the community outreach and support like there with the Native American community? Um, so it's a little difficult to say because when I first got here, I mean, it was the height of COVID. Um, I, I got here, I'm an older airman with the experience living in the outside world and I got put in the dorm, <laughs> mm-hmm. lived with a, another individual who was almost 10 years younger than me. <laughs> and then slowly, slowly I was able to get myself out of the dorms and then try and venture out. But with tribal groups, COVID hit us really hard. Um, a lot of tribal peoples, we live in very remote areas uh, with it's a very, it's, it lacks a lot of resources that are needed. Um, and then also our, our elders are a very important part of our lives, but they're, I mean, there are elders, they're more susceptible to these outbreaks. So it was, it's really hard to try and get in contact with, with groups to try and build that, that bridge and start that communication when we were in the midst of a pandemic. But now with things starting to open up, I mean, there's the Denver powwow coming up here in March, which is going to be amazing. I'm hoping I can get a group to, to go with me there. Um, there's there's various groups around here. There's uh, actually a Native American restaurant, uh, Takabe's, that's I, I really enjoy. It's, it's really so much like a Chipotle, that, that, that style. So I'm hoping I can, I mean, my, my immediate unit is very open to to experiencing and learning things. I mean, I, when my birthday came, they wrote me a birthday card and it said happy birthday in the Klamath language. Like that was amazing. I've never had anyone else try and do that for me in any working group. And that just like really hit a heart chord with me. It was, it was wonderful. <laughs> Fantastic. And anybody is welcome at that powwow, correct? Yes, and anyone. Even- even an old Scandinavian American like myself. <laughs> oh yeah, the more the merrier. Right. 
I mean, vows are, are for like celebrating and uh, telling stories and just co- competing because there's usually a, a lot of competitions going on dancing wise. You can learn a lot about various tribes because at these powwows, people are coming from all over the states, all over the place. So sounds like a great celebration. Oh yeah, um, no alcohol, yeah. no drugs because it's it's a it's a safe place. I mean, it's a celebration. It's it's a tradition. Sounds like a great thing to do, and you're doing some awesome things there at Buckley with the. Uh, taking your expertise and then teaching other people. And I, I do hope people take the opportunity to, to attend that. It sounds like a great thing. This is, uh, we're highlighting stories of uh, Native Americans that are serving in both the Air and Space Forces over the, the month of November. And while there is so much joy and so, much, uh, so many good things to learn in the preservation of heritage and the stories that our Native American airmen and guardians are telling, uh, there's also been quite a bit of struggle. You alluded to it a little bit earlier. Um, when we talked, I asked you, hey, who's a historical figure that you admire? And you mentioned Sachin Littlefeather. Um, she recently passed away. And in 1973, she refused the Oscar that was supposed to go to Marlon Brando. And what a fascinating story. Um she kind of has this uh, this tie with you or you have this tie with her where cultural heritage and respecting it is something that's important. How did it, how did you come up with her as your historical figure to, that you admire? And what are those traits and characteristics that you really admire in her? So when, when I was writing my, my thesis, I actually looked into a little bit of about the, the various Native American um, grassroots groups that were trying to like work on gaining civil rights for us. So in 1969, there was the the Alcatraz um, takeover, as some people like to call it, a sit-in. And she she was all for it. And she wanted civil rights to, she wanted more civil rights for Native American peoples. I mean, we weren't given the, the right to vote uh, until the late 40s, early 50s. Um, there were various programs put into place to get Native Americans off the reservation and kind of out into the cities to help them get like a leg up and actually be able to, to gain an education and whatnot. But a lot of these programs fell through and she saw this and she worked very hard. She established a couple of um, groups in Seattle. She, she went to um, Europe a few times to give speeches on her experience as a Native American woman. She, I mean, she's, she, you, you said that I have fearless notes that she was extremely fearless and very giving and she put others before her all the time. It's, she's, she's someone that I look up to and I hope that I can obtain a quarter or a fifth of the things that she was able to accomplish in her lifetime. I mean, even when she got booed off the stage at the Oscars um, by giving her speech, talking about how Native Americans were were treated and how they were portrayed in, in Hollywood, she still held her head high and she didn't give in. She didn't say slanderous things. She didn't try to fight anybody. She was very graceful. She was very poised and she she held her head high. So I hope that I can hold my head high through everything that comes in my way. 
and I can handle every dispute with the grace that she did. And I'm sure in that moment, it took an incredible amount. I just doing a little bit of research here, John Wayne standing in the back was absolutely furious. And at that moment in our country's history, uh, it was a while back and 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. And our outlook has changed. The way we treat human beings has changed. But like you alluded to earlier, our policies still are not quite catching up with that. Um, Carly, closing things out here, a strong, well-educated Klamath uh, uh, woman that's serving as an airman at a Space Force base. There's a lot of people out there that are, are thinking about serving or are currently serving uh, new in their careers and maybe don't have that fortitude to hold their head up high like you do um, and like Sachin Littlefeather did. What advice do you have for people that may be struggling with identifying within their heritage and serving in the military at the same time? Be fearless. <laughs> it's it's scary. I'm scared all the time. I'm worried about what, what my next action might, might cause the ripple effect, but my ancestors fought hard for me. Um, I feel it's, I should do the same for the future to come. And the world's changing right now. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter how, how many times you want to change your career path. Everything is an experience. And if you can learn at least one thing from every experience, I think you're on the right track. It's don't be afraid to open your mind and to, to gain a, a new a, a new experience. I said that a lot, but it's true. Um, life's scary, but you just got to power through and it's always an adventure. Be open to it. Absolutely right. Carly Law, thank you for joining me today on our, on our podcast. And we're highlighting stories of Native Americans serving in the air and space forces on our series called America's First Warriors. Uh, it's been such a privilege to talk to you. I hope that uh, Buckley continues to treat you well, but more importantly, I hope you continue to treat Buckley well and, and our great Air Force as you continue to serve. Thanks, Carly. All right, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. It's been, it's been fun. Absolutely, and I hope that you stick around after our short break. I'll be joined by Lemire Davis, and he'll share his story on this two-part series of America's First Warriors. Welcome back to the second half of this week's America's First Warriors stories of today's airmen and guardians. Joining me now is Staff Sergeant Marvis Lemire. Sergeant Lemire is currently stationed in the Oklahoma City area as a recruiter, bringing our newest airmen and guardians into the service. He's Nakota Sioux and has the privilege of raising four daughters. Welcome to America's First Warriors. Good morning, sir. Hey, let's start by uh, unpacking a little of your roadmap to a career in the Air Force. You started in 2006, which according to my math would put you in for about 14 years, but that's just not so. What happened? So initially I joined in 2006 and um, got stationed in Malstrom, um, Montana, the Air Force base there in Montana. Served there. Um, from 2007 to 2010, and in 2010, I decided to separate. Um, separated in 2010, uh, still stayed in Montana. Uh, ended up going to college using my GI Bill, all those things, and 
started working uh, upon graduation. Um, and then uh, the uh, one of my friends hit me up and asked me, he's like, hey, do you, would you potentially uh, want to come back and, and work in the Air Force? Uh, so I said, yeah, and that was roughly around the end of 2015. I started working my process to getting back in and uh, got back in 2016. How hard was that to uh, to leave and then come back? I know it's a process. No, uh, it was pretty hard. There was a lot of hoops we had to jump through to, in order for me to uh, get qualified to come back in just because uh, the, the length of time that I had been separated. Um, but I'm, I'm glad I did it. For sure. So you mentioned that you went to a college when you got out. What was your job first off when you were uh, in Montana? Um, it was a 2 so nuclear facilities maintainer. So I, I um, maintained the nuclear silo facility. Like it, it has a HVAC system, diesel generator, stuff like that to uh, just make sure that the, uh, the missile is uh, launch capable at all times. Not a lot of call for that specific of a job in the civilian sector so when you got out did you uh did you kind of stay in that facilities maintenance field i did i did i actually got picked up um working for a government facility on my reservation in fort belknap um i did that for about a year year and a half before i ultimately got picked back up to join the air force awesome did you live on the reservation while you were there working yeah, I did. I lived on and I lived off. I, um, while I was going to school uh, in Haver, Montana, it was like 90 miles, 90 miles, uh, about 90 miles away from um, where Fort Belknap is. I was going to college there, so I ended up deciding to live there closer to the college. Um, but for the most part, I was living back home at Fort Belknap in Hayes, Hayes, Montana. In Hayes? You... um. You went to community college. You were working um, very interested in the electrical sciences. In fact, that's what your associates is in. What's the college experience like at Fort Belknap Community College? Uh, I just did a little bit of research on that. Uh, it seems like they have a pretty strong uh, cultural heritage section in that college. Did you uh, did you get in ingrained into that uh, that community while you were there? Uh, yes, sir. So my mother's from there originally. I didn't grow up in Fort Belknap, um, but when I graduated high school in 2003, um, I enrolled in Fort Belknap Community College. And uh, from 2003 to 2005, <clears throat> that's what I did. And I graduated there. I was the first one from in my family to graduate with an associate's degree. It was in natural resources. Um and then I uh, couldn't find work, so I ended up joining the Air Force. Um, after I separated in 2010, I went to the University of uh, Northern Montana, so MSU Northern, um, and that's in Haver, Montana. Uh, and I graduated from there with another associate's degree in the electrical um, electrical field. So two two associates, and you're the first one in your in your family to to get probably to get two of those degrees, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, when you came back into the Air Force, did you go right into the recruiting field or did you go back out to the um, facilities maintenance? Um, when I came back, I got stationed right back at Mushroom and uh, I got back into my old job. Um, so it was kind of crazy because I went straight to MEPS. I swore in and they gave me my orders and I said, you report to uh, Mushroom Air Force Base uh, two days from now. 
I didn't have an ID or nothing, so I was like totally confused. It was it was pretty crazy. <laughs> I hope you didn't join the military to see the world because you really haven't, have you? <laughs> I have not, sir. That's how I always tell people, especially during recruiting. I was like, oh, initially I joined for the uh, possibilities of going to Japan or the UK, um, but I ended up getting stationed in my home state. Um, at the beginning, when I first found out, I wasn't too enthusiastic about it, but um, after doing my job, falling in love with my job, and uh, really just appreciating the opportunity that I had, um, it didn't matter where I was at. So uh, I'm glad things worked out the way they did. That's fan- fantastic. Hopefully, sometime in your uh, in your lifetime in the Air Force here, you do get a chance to see a little bit more of the world. But right now, uh, you're still kind of in the Midwest, the southern part of the Midwest, and you got this great opportunity to help shepherd people that are interested in service actually into the service. What are the, what are the challenges and the benefits of that type of job? So the challenges for me is um, typically I'm not a person that likes to stand up in front of people and speak in a public uh, speaking setting. Um, One-on-one conversations is all right. Uh, But when, once you get me to, to stand up and, uh, use my big boy voice, I guess, or, or speak in front of a high school student. That was the, the more challenging. So it's just stepping out of my comfort zone and, and uh, understanding that this is what the Air Force needs me to do uh, for them. So uh, I, I took it as a challenge and, and uh, been able to overcome that for the most part. There's still times where I stumble here and there, but um, that's something that uh, I'm glad that I've been put in this position is because it's given me the chance to not only not only grow professionally, but like personally too. So it's given me the confidence uh, to do think something that I thought I would never be able to do. Yeah. Is that, is that the hardest part of the recruiting piece is just kind of overcoming that fear or I mean, you talked about the process of coming back into the air force after being out for a bit. And a lot of these uh, folks that are just getting interested in joining, it is a big process, isn't it? It is, sir. It is. Yeah. Um, and, and for me, that was the biggest fear. For other people, it could be different things. But um, I think coming and stepping into recruiting was by far the, the scariest part of uh, my Air Force journey so far, just because um, when I tell you I can't do public speaking, I would, I would get all nervous and clammy. Um, my hands would be sweaty. It was, that's the truth. Like uh, It took a lot for me to, to, to do this just by repetition and just understanding that this is what I need to do. Yeah, and we definitely need uh, good motivated people. What are, what are you uh, what are you looking for characteristic wise in uh, troops that are coming in? I mean, you are somebody that uh, grew up on a reservation, moved away, went to college, joined the Air Force, got out of the Air Force, came back in. There's this level of of personal perseverance. Now you're you're working through your own fears. How do you pick up on that when you're looking for somebody that will be a good fit for us in the military? <clears throat> Typically, I look for somebody who is um, engaged. Um, they are mo- self-motivated. Um, when I tell people, I'm just trying to open a door and give you the opportunities that I've been able to thrive on. Uh, that's the legit the way I look at it. Um, if, if this is something you're serious about and you want to do, I'll do my best to help you get you there. Uh, but for the most part, like a lot of kids step into the office and they kind of already have their mind made up. Um, a lot of adults, they already kind of know what the Air Force can provide. It's more or less just me kind of figuring out, uh, helping them figure out a game plan, plan and guiding them to, 
to getting where they need to be, um, getting them the information that they want to know about specific jobs or about the Air Force in general is about it. Um, but as far as like finding uh, a good fit for the Air Force, um, most of the time those people are who are a good fit are the ones who are going to stay on top of what they need to do. Like if I'm setting taskers, there's a one, they're the ones that are going to be hitting those taskers um, on time and, and staying on task at all times. Uh, for the most, for the, for the other portion of the kids that, that aren't staying on those, the, most of the time they won't respond back after a while. Cause uh, I stay, I stay pretty heavy on the communication. Like if I'm asking for something, I'll, I'll stay message, messaging them. It sounds like a good combination between a, uh, a seasoned educator, teacher, trainer, motivator, and a taskmaster all at the same time. Yeah, we wear a lot of hats in recruiting, uh, a lot of administrative work, a lot of stuff that I wasn't previewed to before. Beforehand, before coming here, I was uh, just pretty much used to turning wrenches and, and worrying about my own work. But now that uh, stepping into recruiting, it's, it's opened up a door to a whole lot of other things, like uh, being a human resources manager pretty much. And there's a lot to that field, that's for sure. Hey, when I introduced you, Marvis, you uh, I mentioned that you are a Nakota Sioux. And for people like me that don't necessarily know a whole lot about Native American culture, can you talk about the differences between uh, Nakota, Lakota, and Dakota? And some of, the, some of the things that set them apart, but some of the things that are similar. So primarily... The uh the main the main difference is uh the dialect of which we speak. So Nakota, Dakota, and Lakota they all have their own dialect. Uh the the best way I can explain it is is most of the time was Nakotas are speaking, um N they use N predominantly. Dakotas they'll use D in a lot of their um a lot of their words and Lakotas they'll use L. Um a lot of things are similar but there are differences uh between the languages. Um, for the most part, like a, a fluent speaker can pick up on what a Lakota speaker is saying, but it won't be exactly to a T of, of, of what they're saying. Like they get the general idea of what they're asking for, what they're trying to talk about. Um, but the dialects are just a little bit different. Um, as far as uh, the differences, differences was um, just where we territory was. Um, we were more kind of northwestern i guess so like montana area uh down to uh Nico or north dakota um spread out that way um i don't know necessarily know where the lakotas or dakotas roamed a whole lot but that was probably one of the bigger differences so the big big thing is more of the more of the regional and the the language dialect just like i have a hard time it takes me a long time to understand somebody that's got that thick Southern accent. So is that kind of the a way of looking that at this similarly? Yes, sir. Yeah, it, it, it is. It's, um, yeah, there's a lot of different slangs, um, a lot of different, some, some words uh, mean the same things and some words mean totally opposite things. You, uh, you grew up speaking, um, Nakota, is that correct? Um, not a fluent speaker. No, no, I more or less. So growing up away from Fort Belknap, uh, I didn't have the chance to really get to uh, dive into learning my languages uh, of, of Fort Belknap. My mother is a uh, was uh, Ani and Nakota. So the on, on paper, it says Grovant for uh, Ani, but they're they're uh, 
that language and the Nakoda language, I really didn't get a chance to uh, start learning until I moved back to um, my home reservation in 2003. Who was your primary teacher when you started learning the language then? Um, two people. I started learning both of them a little bit. Like uh, through college, it was Terry Brocky, um, and he was he taught uh, Ani for the most part as a class, but um, working through ceremony and and things like that, powwows, whatever it may be. Um, hearing him speak, you kind of pick up on, on generally what he's trying to say. As far as the Nakota side, it was uh, my adopted brother, Kenneth Helgeson. Um, he's a, he's a, about a year older than me, but he was raised by his grandmother, and she's the one that taught him, Dora Helgeson. She taught him how to speak. And uh, upon graduation from high school in 2002, um, the high school where he graduated from in Hayes, uh, they picked him up as a teacher and he kind of revitalized the uh, Nakota language and it's uh, still surviving. Um, I would say thriving at this point now, but uh, I can't say that I'm a fluent speaker. I'm, I'm forever learning and I will forever, forever be learning uh, my languages. One of the ways, the best ways of learning something is to teach. So I mentioned you were, you were raising four daughters are you helping to teach them the language and pass that along? Uh, as best as I can, yeah. I try to I try to um, shed light on not only our language but our, our cultural um, our co- culture, our ways of our culture, and and uh, how we pray, things like that. How what what women are supposed to do in society when it comes to um, ceremonies and, and things like that. All of it kind of factors in and. and with the language. So a, a lot of like our culture or ceremony and, and, and things that I'm speaking of are, are uh, based around the, uh, the language languages themselves. Certainly. If you were sharing with me, or if you mind, don't mind sharing with me a little bit. Uh, if I wanted to learn about the significance of different parts of the ceremonies that you practice, what are some of the significances and some of the, in some of the ceremony that you you would perform, um, I'm kind of confused by the question. So yeah, sorry. Forgive me. It's uh, so if you are a traditional ceremony, um, what are the different parts of a, a traditional ceremony and their significance? So it it's based totally on what what's going on. Um, it's there's a lot of ceremonies within each tribe that are. Uh, one could be celebration, one could be for healing, um, one could be for, um, uh, I don't know how to explain this, could it kind of follow under So it just depends on what, what, what ceremony you need for, for what's going on. Like you could have a naming ceremony for, for your children and they could get their, their name through the tribe, their Indian name. Um, or you could be having a tough time in life and you could ask someone, um, for a sweat for for healing and they can they can put that on or you can someone can ask for a sweat for celebration and same reason they could put that on um it just depends on what what's going on and and who you ask tell me how that works the you you talk about uh, a sweat what exactly is that so um that one's kind of hard to explain. It's, uh, the way the way I was always taught was these things are are meant to be taught in person. Uh, it's kind of hard to to explain to you in full 
and make you understand in full by just telling you through words. Um, it's something you kind of have to experience to, to really fully have a grasp of Certainly. what it is. Um, it's just a ceremony that uh, we've used to, to help with whatever's going on. If we're, we're trying to celebration, celebrate something or give thanks for, for someone who has an illness. Um, it just depends on who's, who's asking and what they're asking for. Um, they would go to a sweat lodge keeper or maker and uh, ask them to, to put the ceremony on to, uh, to give thanks or, or to ask for help. It sounds like a very, um, a, a very spiritual way or, or inner focused way of, of looking at oneself and, and being very in, in a intense moment of reflection. Is that a good way of putting that? Yeah, it is. It is. It's, a. Uh... Uh, I like how you say a, a spiritual way. Like a lot of these, uh, when I say culture and with uh, with natives, Native Americans, with in in, in my experiences, this is more of a, a lifestyle and not something that that is just oh, it's there when I need it. This is something that you live every day. It's something that it, that's a part of you. Um, like I said, it's a learning with the language. It's the same thing. Um, it's something that you you utilize every day and something that is uh, pre- present with you at all times. Wonderful. You uh, you mentioned to me that you used to dance and sing as a part of the part of ceremony and just a part of your your own practice. You don't anymore though, do you? Uh, I don't dance, but I still sing. Um, I used to dance growing up. I used to, my mom, she first started me out as a traditional dancer and I danced from, I think I was like two till I was about six. And then um, she uh, decided to switch me up to a fancy dancer, and I danced a uh, fancy fancy dance style for for about another five six years before I just decided ultimately I didn't want to dance anymore. Um, just describe would, what fancy dancing is. So uh, you got two bustles on your back. It's more of a southern style type of dance. Um, I don't know what what tribe it originated from, but during the powwow celebrations, it's a it's a it's a category. It's a style. So uh, I love the style, I guess, as a kid. And my mom had to uh, go out and find me uh, uh, a fancy dancing outfit. It's a fast-paced uh, type of, of uh, dancing style. Um, it's exciting. A lot of people uh, like watching it uh, just because the the pace of it and it's a it's a it's a good it's a good uh, it's a good show, I guess. I'm sure. Uh, best way to put it. Absolutely, um, but you do still sing, right? I do, sir. Yes, sir. Um, and uh, I sing all like uh, I've sang during powwows. I've sang uh, for ceremony. Um, singing is is something that really sticks with me. Um, I've I started singing in two thousand and six, right before uh, I joined the Air Force. Um, and I still sing to this day. Um, whenever I get a chance to, uh, it's something that uh, I pride myself on. Something that uh, I really I really am proud of some that I've learned how to how to do that, and I'm able to do that for for people um, and ceremonies for whatever's going on. If they need somebody to kind of help out, I'll do my best to help out and and help sing. That's awesome. Do you um do you get a good opportunity to do that in Oklahoma now that you're living down in uh, uh, down in the southern midwestern area of our uh, of our United States? Is there a good opportunity there? There, there is opportunities here. There are good opportunities. They have a lot of power celebrations. 
Um, the way I sing is more northern style. Uh, down here, you got a lot of southern style singers, and there's there's differences on how they sing. Um, but for the most part, like uh, with recruiting, I'll be pretty honest. I stay pretty busy with recruiting, so there's not a whole lot of time for for uh, singing as much as I'd like to. Like so, so for the most part, like I'll sing uh, here at home when I have time to um, to do thing do things like that, but um, not singing nearly as much as I, I'd, I'd like to, for sure. 15 years old, all the way down to four, does your teenage daughter, does it resonate with her or is dad just being dad? I, I believe it resonates with all of them. Um, all, all of them are pretty proud of, of who they are, where they come from, and they have a good beat of, of what it is to be a Nakoda, a, a Ani, a Nehi Harwood, because um, my father is Cree, Rocky Boy, a Chippewa Cree from, from Rocky Boy, so they do. They pay homage to 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 all of them. So they understand that they're not just Nakota. They're not just the Ani. Um, they are from Chippewa Cree also. So they try to do their best to to uh, to uh, pay respects to to all all tribes. You are uh, raising good good people with a good respect for their uh, their heritage and their ancestors. And I I asked you, um, you know, who do you admire? Who do you look up to? Um, who's somebody that you're you're really interested in from the past that taught lessons? And you talked about the chiefs of the past and the difficult decisions that they have had to make in in leadership. Uh, who are some of those chiefs, and what are what are some of the lessons you learned about leadership, resilience, and strength from those great people? So I I don't uh, I didn't really couldn't really pick out any single one. And the reason why I say the Chiefs that had to make the tough decisions uh, was because um, in my eyes, I believe uh, my children are what they foresaw. Um, and I hope that I'm doing a good job by them. Um, the youth of, of what we have in Indian country today is, is what they foresaw, that we're still thriving. We're still here. Um, we were that hope. We were that light that they were they were looking to 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 save with their decisions they had to make the tough decisions that they had to uh to endure and and, and survive um when i when i when i think of that decision that that the, the decisions that they had to make it, it would be it, it would be really hard you know what i mean for for anybody to to uh to really put themselves in that type of situation and see that there could be a, a possibility of of me happening. There could be a possibility of my children happening. There could be a possibility of of my brother Kenneth Helgeson, Terry Brocky, all of the the cultural and spiritual leaders back home, John John Stiffarm. I can name a bunch. Like I, I've I've worked with all of them through through ceremony and, and what they do for our communities, language wise. Um, that's that's what I believe they were they were holding on to, and I think. Uh, I think that they uh, they they would be proud, and uh, I'm thankful that they made the decisions they did. Um, because without them, I wouldn't wouldn't have this opportunity. Uh, I wouldn't have the opportunity to be able to to uh, parent my kids as I do. I believe I'm trying my best. I'm doing the best that I can, and uh, I think that they're gonna grow up to be good good human beings. And that's all I'm asking for. That is the goal of every parent, isn't it? Yes, sir. Yeah, you uh, you mentioned that uh, the the culture is thriving. 
And uh, I think that is so important, the richness and the diversity that our country has and that it offers. Um, and yet our, our country still struggles to make it okay and to, to grow and thrive as a rich and diverse culture um, within the country. And one of the things that I have learned is that um, as a population, there are more Native Americans as a percentage serving in the military. And um, it's extraordinarily high compared to other demographics like myself. Why do you suppose that is? Um, I think it boils down to a number of things. Um, first and foremost, I think it's just because um, it's what we've done since the beginning of our time. Since the beginning, since we since we've been here, um, serve service within uh, Native American communities is uh, you, there's not too many ceremonies you can do without uh, veterans' help. So warrior warrior societies within our people have always been here, and they will always be here until until we are no longer part of this world. Um, but it also boils down to opportunity, too, um, as far as like being in a situation that I was in, um, stepping into something to help better your life. Uh, it's a door, it's an opportunity, um, whether it be with the Air Force or, or the Army, Marines or the Navy, uh, they all provide that 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 uh, service of being a, a veteran and also the opportunity to help better yourself. It is, uh, I have heard that uh, um, it, you mentioned that can't have ceremony without the honoring or the help of the veterans in that in that regard, and and I know that that is something that is uh, revered at uh, at ceremony, which is just so fantastic. You are um, you've been you describe yourself as somebody that has a strong will, and that has helped you to overcome a great many things in your life. Uh, Marvis, what's what what's a challenge that you have had to face that uh, that's really developed you as a person, as a Native American in our military, uh, and as a father? What What's a challenge that you've had to go through and, and how that made you, bless you, uh, how's that made you better? Excuse me, hold on. Yeah. Sorry about that. No, um, that's all right. It's morning, and we're both we're both having our cup of coffee in our own in our own <laughs> neck of the woods. <laughs> no, um, I, as far as like um, challenge, I think the hardest challenge for me is uh, being away from home because of uh, what I do for how I help out for our people, not what I do, how how I help out, and, and always being there to do the things that I think is necessary for um our people to survive um so stepping away and, and being of, of in service of, of our country america so be, being away in oklahoma um it's tough because you're, you're you're not you're not in the in the thick of it with it when it comes to like ceremony or culture so um i think for me off the top of my head that's that's the hardest thing um as far as being strong-willed i've i've, I've always been that way uh resilient i guess in, in uh i don't like talking like this because i'm like speaking on myself um but now for me to to explain to you this is this is how i have to explain it um but stepping in situations that are uncomfortable 
Um, I've noticed throughout my life, I've always done that. And I've never, I've had fear, but I've always gotten through it no matter what it was. And um, that's something uh, I am proud, proud of for sure. Thank you for that. I, I so appreciate your ability to communicate the strength that you've had to show as a good example for other people who hopefully who are listening and, and maybe just need that little extra dose of courage in, in a difficult time. I'm sure I know that's a challenge for you. You mentioned it. So thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, thank you, sir. So we are, we're doing this podcast on, as a series during Native American Heritage Month. And uh, as we start to roll out here, why is this month or why is celebrating Native American heritage an important piece of our country? Uh, for me, um, Native American heritage heritage is every day. Uh, but for, for this month, I think it's important because it gives us the opportunity to educate. Um, educate everybody by kind of uh, expressing ourselves like through like uh, through celebration or, or if someone invites uh, say me out to a school and they wanted to ask like what's important about Native American Heritage Month and what do you see um, education is is key because I mean if we educate everybody like all the different races who are in America about uh, ourselves about kind of the do's or and don'ts or or just highlight the good things or even the bad things uh, of what, what happened and, and what went down and how we can move forward. I think that's the biggest key uh, for me that Native American Heritage Month can provide. Well, you've definitely given us a, a little bit better window about uh, about you personally, but also about your culture and your heritage, uh, Marvis. And I do appreciate so much you sharing your story. Thank you, sir. Absolutely. Hey, I hope you're all enjoying the series uh, during Native American Heritage Month, hearing the rich stories of Native American airmen and guardians. Next week, I'll be featuring two airmen, one serving within the Space Force and another serving, um, bringing our newest airmen into the Air Force. Uh, Sergeant Lemire talked to us about recruiting folks. Once he's done with that hard job, we send them to Lackland which is a special place for, for everybody serving in the Air and Space Force right now. And uh, this young woman is uh, helping to develop them into uh, actual airmen. So I hope until then uh, you enjoyed this series and I hope to hear from you or see you next time on our podcast. Thanks again, Sergeant Lemire. Thank you, sir. I appreciate the opportunity. America's First Warriors, Stories of Today's Airmen and Guardians was sponsored by the Indigenous Nations Equality Team, an Air and Space Force Barrier Analysis Working Group. Background research and subject exploration was accomplished by Master Sergeant Francis Dupree, Buckley Space Force Base, and the 133rd Airlift Wing's Podcast Development Team. Special thanks to Master Sergeant Lacey Roberts for her technical and cultural guidance and to Ms. Amy Lovegren of the 133rd Airlift Wing's Public Affairs team for her production expertise. Again, I've been your host, Chief Master Sergeant Mark Blakevold.